Greetings, citizens and civilians. You're tuned to the Guard Frequency. As all good pilots know, when you're out in the deep black, you want to keep one ear on the guard. This is episode 11 and was recorded live on February 22nd and made available for download on the 25th of February at guardfrequency.com. I'm Lennon. I'm Tony. And I'm Jeff. So, what do we have this week, Tony? In this week's Squawk Box, we bring you up to speed with the sound of video game history. In CIG News, we'll get you up-to-the-minute coverage on everything happening around the UEE, including our weekly crowdfunding update, the latest in-universe fiction, and the fourth episode of The Next Great Starship. In Nuggets for Nuggets, we bring you everything we know about taking damage in the verse, and then we'll tune into the feedback loop to get you in on our conversation. Sits and Sis are always on the lookout for talented individuals to come and join the crew here at Card Frequency. So if you've got a creative itch that needs scratching, we'd love to hear from you. Drop us an email with your experience and what you would like to bring to the table to squawk at guardfrequency.com. That's S-Q-U-A-W-K. Please remember that all positions here at Priority One Productions are voluntary. This is a labor of love, but we do look great on a CV or a resume. And that takes care of the housekeeping for this week, so let's get to the meat of the show and see what's coming through the squawk box. Any of you boys need a carrier around here? Uh, everything's under control. Situation normal. Cryptor, 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 this is Tony saying welcome to the squawk box, everyone. A very interesting Kickstarter project came up this week, something of particular note in this community. George Oldze, the original composer of the score for Wing Commanders 3 and 4, has come to the crowdfunding well to realize a decades-old dream of his. He wants $35,000 to engage an 80-piece orchestra and 40-voice choir to record the nine-minute main title to the series. The music exists today in the interwebs as a MIDI file or low-quality 1990s-style compressed audio wave. But uh, as anybody who has heard the score for Star Citizen can tell, there is no substitute for live people smacking catgut on metal and wheezing past sticks into tubes with valves on them. The aforementioned smacking and wheezing will be done either in Prague or Bratislava, which I believe are in the Davian system somewhere. This guy's legit, folks. He scored Kill Bill 2 and Sin City and recently composed and produced a soundtrack to an MMO called Shaia. That process got him thinking about his Wing Commander days, and he went back to the drawing board, writing out the score for the Wing Commander suite. The project is already over 20% funded, only three days in as we record this, so it's off to a pretty good running start. There are several backer levels, but mainly what you're doing is pledging to get a copy of the music unless you want a $5,000 leather jacket. So any of you guys nostalgic for the sounds of the Wing Commander theme as you blast through the verse, blowing up not Killrathies? Honestly, I don't remember the Wing Commander theme. I feel bad because oh. I'm such a Wing Commander nut, but... Uh... Jeff, Jeff, if you pause for a couple of seconds, it sounds like this. Ah. Yay for post-production. <laughs> I got it. So I'm all good for good music. I mean, some of the reasons I play a game or repeat playing a game is the fact that the music keeps me enticed. Yeah, a good score really 
helps. Again, it's one of those iconic things about some sci-fi. I ranted last week about uniforms and bad guys, but, you know, a theme song will help too. BSG are really iconic with the percussion and those sort of wailing horns, the Klingon theme on Star Trek. You you always know who's coming when you hear that song. Mystery Science Theater 3000. (laughs) (laughs) They're all there. Another... Another iconic theme, yes, indeed. You red, always know red that, dwarf uh, pearl. Yeah, red. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Now, this is really cool. I am so behind this. I'm a huge fan of video game music in general, which mainly comes from like a massive love of the Final Fantasy series, which I think yeah. you know most people would agree the scores on that are just phenomenal. My son's playing through Legend of Zelda right now, and I, I can't get the stupid Legend of Zelda theme out of my oh, head gosh. for the life of me. There's a game that was on the original PlayStation. It was called Alundra. It's very much like a Zelda game. Um, it's like that sort of RPG adventure type thing. And I played it and played it and played it and played it and played it for like literally about 24 hours straight. And when I tried to sleep, I couldn't sleep because my brain was just playing the overworld map music constantly. <laughs> and, well, uh, I, got, I got to say, there's nothing like the original 8-bit Zelda for sticking something in your head you can never get rid of. Oh, earwig total earwig there was another one i'll go i'll go even back further than that there was a mod for the uh, old neverwinter nights game the aelund series a i e l u n d for the old neverwinter nights game and the main theme for that is just haunting and he took it from like an old 1984 commodore 64 atari game and that's another one so the music in a game really can make the difference and even in a community-based mod having that extra atmosphere that you put into it uh, really makes a big difference. Well, I think that's why Fallout was so successful. The music that they had in it, that old 40s and 50s style music running through the whole game. You know, every time I hear one of those songs on the radio now, and it's not often, but I, (laughs) I think of playing Fallout. Yeah, it puts your brain there. Well, have you read, seen, or heard something that you think might be interesting to other citizens or civilians? Send us an email to squawk at guardfrequency.com. Now let's check out some CIG news. 3175 Port Bay, hands on approach, trigger screen, call the ball. Don't get technical with me. Our weekly crowdfunding update, we're at 39118000 and it took all the way until Friday to hit that number. You were wrong I mean, again. We, all kinds of, all, I was, we were so kind of screwed up all last week. It's horrible, terrible. I feel bad. We're on our way to the final system unlocks. That's unlocks, plural, with an S. The Kabul system and the Oratani system, that would be the haunted Tavaran world and the lost human colony, respectively. There are 7,821 alpha slots left. We're still ticking along at a pretty regular rate here, a little off uh, from last week, and right around 396,000 registered users, an upswing of about 5,000, again, a bit off the usual pace as well. And with hitting another stretch goal, we get our letter from the chairman. Chris confirms that we're now well and truly on our way to UDS 2493-01-22, the system that rolls right off the tongue with a truly unique feel. Once thought to contain a single massive star, the system actually houses a trinary star consisting of two white dwarfs and an active pulsar, all orbiting one another. Because of the complex gravitational factors at work, it is now believed that the jump point leading to this system is likely to be in or near human explored space. Could there be planets existing in this system, carefully hanging in the gravity wells of such a complex setup? Well, that's for us to discover. Also, remember that we were promised we'd get a totally different set of rewards for each subsequent milestone that we reach? Well, we're treated to the first of these. 
If Star Citizen reaches 41 million, then CIG will fund an entire procedural terrain generation research and development department. This will allow planet services to be huge and seemingly infinite, with vast expansions for exploration and colonization. And let's not forget that they've also given us some fantastic concept drawings of the new destroyer. Jeff, Tony, have you taken a look at the concept art? What did you think? Oh. oh. I think that's I all that needs one. to be said. Moving on. I want one. <laughs> Who doesn't? Continuing with the epic adventures of our rowing reporters, part four of Dateline Sassen series continues pounding our faces with its literary strength, leaving us wanting more as they end up in yet another cliffhanger. What's interesting about this piece is that we're introduced to the death and near-death system that's going to be in the game through a great piece of fiction, and that leaving injured people untreated will actually cause permadeath. If you haven't caught up with the Sassin series, links will be in our show notes. In the latest update to OP.net, we're introduced in fiction to the underhanded world of mercenaries in the verse. A fairly short piece that doesn't really go into too much detail other than effectively confirming that mercenaries will be available either player to player or NPC. And we have come around to another 10 for the Chairman, Episode 8. It's kind of awkward doing this one because by the time this show releases, Episode 9 of 10 for the Chairman will have already been out. But we do more here than report the news. We also analyze and discuss. So even though it's a little bit dated, I think that the analysis really carries it. And the first question we're going to look at here, uh, are there more fighters coming? Chris Roberts says, yeah. There's going to be more ships that are designed strictly for dogfighting. So there's only 13 ships, you know, confirmed and fleshed out in the game so far. But you know, there's more coming. He also goes on to answer the question: Does multiple packages purchased in the pledge system mean you'll get multiple hangars in the persistent universe that you can scatter about the verse in different planets? And he says maybe. The balancing question there is, we don't want you to start off as a real estate tycoon with stores on every planet. You know, it should be a challenge to establish a base somewhere other than home for you once you get into persistent. Well, that's that's good news because I upgraded my original hangar and then I got another hangar when I bought my Constellation. Yeah, and I mean, I guess it kind of depends with our hangars at the moment. In the hangar module, we have no idea if they're in space, are they ground-based? So I could see that it would be quite cool to have one planet side and one space side. So if there was like a spaceport, that would be cool. One of the particular questions he addressed was the asteroid hangar. You know, that one yes. has to be in space, right? Yes. It's got to be in an asteroid. And so if you have an asteroid hangar and a business class, then clearly those sort of have to be in two places. But it's like, are we going to make you choose one even though you did buy two? He said that they're going to have to work out that mechanic and figure out a good way to make that happen. Another reason why the crowdfunding method is good because these mm. questions get raised and addressed. Do you ever think he goes through uh, these questions in the time for the chairman looks at it and goes, Shh didn't even think of that. <laughs> yeah, have you seen it? Face a couple times when he reads those, and then he kind of goes, uh, okay. you know? And then he like, but he's a salesman, right? You know, he thinks on his feet, so he kind of goes, okay, so here are the components of the answer, and I'm going to assemble them as I talk to the camera, and then try to arrive someplace, and maybe I can, maybe I can't. But it's, it's always fun to see the wheels click when he gets to an answer that ends up being, I don't know. But it's, it's fun to see him work through mm-hmm. it verbally. Brendan101 asks, will the dogfighting module be released in sections depending on the ships that can be used? And if so, will I have to wait until my ship is playable? But we got some answers that we already knew. Multi-crew ships are on hold, you know, because the turret and the interior ship physics are still works in progress. So, you know, no Connies yet. 
Uh, he says definitely the Aurora will be in because that was the ship that Brendan has, and he wanted to know if that one was going to be in there. So Aurora's in. But that was the only one that Roberts was willing to commit to. He said the Hornet and the Aurora, almost certainly. And he said probably the Cutlass, but nothing else. And so my question is, do I just don't get a fly until they get to the Constellation? I have an M50, and that's a single-seater ship, and he didn't mention a thing about that. So, But going on what Chris said previously, didn't he say that everybody was going to be issued with a Hornet to do the dogfighting module? He did say And that. I think that what we're seeing here is just because of the dogfighting module, which is supposed to be released around Christmas, but then he was also saying that the only reason that he said that to begin with was because he thought he would have to drum up interest in the game, and it's clear that there's definitely interest here, that I think we're actually just seeing an extension of the original dogfighting plan. So I think everybody will get a Hornet if you don't have a single-player fighter group, but if you do have a single-player fighter ship then you'll be able to fly that so your aurora will be able to go out there and if you have a hornet then obviously you'll you'll be able to use that regardless but i think it's just sort of the dogfighting module plus 0.1 if you just happen to have the right sort of ship you should be good to go and so then chris was then asked are the organization systems going to be just more than a friends list i mean wouldn't everybody in an organization want to be just just more than friends you know i'm just saying guys there's a bit of chemistry here (laughs) i'm british I realize that might not work. I'm also ginger. That's probably not a good thing. Anyway, I'm getting massively (laughs) off track here. So they wanted to know, will the organization system be more than just a friends list? And Chris says, yeah, the eventual goal with the organizations is to have them as a much more living, breathing part of the universe. They'll be able to tax and own assets like ships and real estate. So they'll be able to tax their members, but also the organization will be able to own its own, for example, a a star base or a production plant on a planet. I think this is a really good sign. I mean, there's obviously corporations in EVE are the closest thing that I can think of to a system like this, but most other games just tend to have guilds or the like as a glorified chat group. Chris was also asked if orgs are going to be uh, able to be combatant groups uh, in the verse, being able to engage in open warfare with each other, and uh, Chris responds, sure, just don't do it where you're in a patrolled sector. The Navy might take a little offense to somebody acting like a military right under their nose. You might be able to do like secret squirrel ninja things, sabotage or uh, other espionage type activities if you're in a fight with another guild or a merchant group or whatever. But you probably want to save the open warfare for the outer fringes of the uh, civilized world. Another question which Chris was asked, which was kind of on my mind as well, is how will the physics work when you're on a multi-person ship and you get hit by something external like a torpedo or just a really big railgun? And Chris's response was quite cool. He said that there was going to be plans that when your ship gets hit, it will sort of send a shockwave throughout the ship and then you'll have that very familiar Star Trek lurching as your ship gets hit and the, the bridge shakes around and your players go sliding from side to side. So it's, that is definitely planned in for the game exactly exactly and you know exploding consoles you think they would have invented fuses in the 24th century but apparently yeah circuit breakers are just something that's way beyond them that will be quite fun and quite cool i think it'll add this extra layer of realism you know if you're just walking down the corridor trying to get to your turret or probably running at that point and the ship Mm -hmm. gets hit by a torpedo and the next thing you know you're on your ass on the ceiling i think that'll make things certainly uh interesting 
And another subscriber wanted to know, if you raid, could somebody take over your ship if you're not successful in your raid? And he said, well, yeah, if you're going to go around trying to steal other people's ships, you better be good enough to actually get it done or else they're going to take your ship. Yeah, can you imagine how cool that would be if you end up with your own armada purely from being attacked and being able to hold them off? Like, <laughs> That'd be fantastic. Yeah. Oh, I've got freelancers coming out of my ass. Why do people keep trying to nick my Connie? Uh, Chris was also asked, will beam weapons be available in the game? And Chris says that beam weapons will be a part of the game, but they won't be available for the player to use on a general day-to-day -day basis. They're going to be definitely the sort of thing that will be on a capital ship rather than on an individual fighter. He wants to keep the fighters very much kinetic-based projectile weapons that really get into the spirit of World War II dogfighting in space. I like that decision. And yes. mostly for the fact that it's a gameplay thing. If you're getting hit by a well-aimed particle shot, whether it's a laser bolt or, you know, some sort of mass driver, you know, if I move, I want the guy to miss. I want him to have to adjust his ship or adjust his guns to continue tracking me. If it's a beam weapon, it's an instantaneous hit, right? You know, if it's a speed of light weapon. So I want the chance to dodge. And capital ships aren't going to be dodging much anyway, so I mean they might as well have that system for the larger ships. But for the smaller dogfighter ship-to-ship -ship things, and this was the first question that was asked, but we're saving it for last because there's we raised some points with the guard frequency team here. Will you be able to make real-world money from in-game activities? And uh, Roberts uh, did it as I was mentioning earlier. You see all the see the wheels turning. And the answer was, put a pin in it. We'll come back to that question because it's a tough one. And Lennon, you're not a fan of this idea. No. Real world money, I can understand getting money into the game. That's fine. I kind of accept the idea of cash shops. I'm still not particularly a fan of them. That's just a personal preference. But I, I see why they exist. Taking real world money out of the game, for me, that tends to upset the balance of the economy hugely because people stop actually putting resources and time into making things that will actually enhance their gameplay but will instead enhance their real world wallet and then i just think you start playing the game for the wrong reasons at that point so no i'm not really a fan of rmt when it's done in reverse i mean it's bad enough when you have the gold sellers who will cash out for yeah. real world money but if you're willingly encouraging the market to fluctuate based on the demands of what people in the game can get rid of quickest to get a buck quickest in the real world, then, you know, I just think it would just really upset the balance. If it was something a little bit like Eve's Plesk system, which is basically you can save them effectively by game time cards, I can kind of see a little bit of merit to that because it's a single item and something like that is actually always in demand and you're not affecting the quality of the natural flow of manufacturing production and trade. If you were able to put anything, say for example, on the auction house and somehow pay for that in real world money and take real world money out from any item in the game, then I think we're looking at something different entirely and I think it would just ruin the economy even though it's not established yet. I just think players would then go in with that mindset and it just wouldn't end well. 
I'm kind of in agreement with Lennon here, probably for a lot of the same reasons. I also think that people are thinking that this is going to be their job. Oh, you know, yeah. this is going to be, they're using the game to be, to make their livelihood. I think that's the wrong way to approach this game or any game for that matter. Games are supposed to be fun. They're not supposed to be your livelihood unless you're creating them. I want to go on that route just for a second. I think that they should let you take real world money out of the game if you're putting real world assets into the game. And what I mean by that is the next great starship type stuff. If you're designing weapons and they pass whatever pipeline quality check they're going to put into place and you can sell those weapons in the verse because uh, Robert Space Industries has said, yeah, go, let's, you know, we want to take this modeling work that you've done and this design work that you've done and we want to put it on our main server and we want people to buy it. I think that is how you do it. Or somebody who generates missions, like a foundry-type system, Star Trek Online, somebody that makes a high-quality single-player mission and it meets whatever quality standards that RSI has. I think if someone wants to make a living doing that, I think that would be fantastic. But somebody manufacturing stumbles, like you were saying, Jeff, or hauling stuff from point A to point B, where you can corner the market with you and your guildmates, and then, of course... Robert Space Industries looks at this and goes, eh, you know what, it's making the game less fun since these people cornered the market. Let's dump a bazillion stem bolts onto the thing just so other people can make widgets. Yeah, you're right. That, that would, that would, I think that would ruin it in so many dimensions. So I think making real-world stuff that makes the game better, that you have to put your time into, you know, outside in the real world, I think you should earn some real-world money for that. But fiddling around with the internal economy of the game, no. Well, what do you think about real-world money in the verse? Game changer or game breaker? Are you planning to convert UEE Imperials into shillings, guineas, pence, and tuppence halfpennies? Let us know on our show post on the RSI forums or beneath our show notes on GuardFrequency.com. Ooh, ooh, ooh. And stay tuned until the feedback loop segment for a special, special surprise. Special surprise. Special surprise. Well, in the latest episode of The Next Great Starship, episode number four, we're introduced to the teams that have automatically gone through, and we get given a behind-the-scenes look into what goes making a great starship for Star Citizen, as we're introduced to the Mustang. In addition, we get to know which team went through on the wildcard vote, and the team was... Infinite Shoe Monkeys! This team were voted out narrowly in episode 3 but managed to sway the opinions of the masses and have proven that they believe they have what it takes to make the next great starship. There is also a concept art gallery for the Mustang over on the Robert Space Industries website, so be sure to check that out. Yeah, did you guys see the voting on the gun? It wasn't even close, it was a landslide. I know, that's why I was quite surprised. That was amazing. Well, that, I mean, that was the one I wanted. I, that was the one that I thought was the best. I'm just a little afraid that so many people agreed with me. I think it was almost half, and there were hmm. 15 or 16 entries, and about almost, I mean, it's like almost a 50% vote for Infinite Shoe Monkey, and then the rest you know, shared the other 50% amongst them, so... It was a landslide. So, uh, the Mustang. On the Mustang, that was an interesting ship. I couldn't get a sense of scale, and it was yeah. kind of weird looking. Kind of like spars and points and stuff that yeah. would break. Yes. That thing, mm. is, you snapped the thing in half as a piece of origami. Yeah. I mean, it was cool looking origami, but it did look like a piece of origami. Here's the thing that, that confused me, though. Towards the end of it, they were showing like the concept painting, like, you know, the thing zooming through the air, and it's all yes. you know, pretty and stuff. It's got the two engines on the top, right? But then over the cockpit, there's some sort of, I don't know, intake or manifold or something that sits up there, and it's shaped almost like the engine. So when the thing was flying at you, I could not get a sense of 
what angle the right. ship was at. Am I looking down at it? Am I looking up, kind of at a three-quarter way, looking sort of up underneath it? It just my eyes didn't grab onto the pieces of it to know what direction it was flying in. It's a, it's an unusual ship. Um, I think maybe when you get into the game, it's going to look different or better. But that one looked like an alien ship to me. That one should have been seriously like you know, put that under the Taveran. Make that a Taveran ship. My judgment's out on this. I'm not quite sure that it should carry the venerable name of Mustang. Nah, uh-huh. good point. You know, what we see as a Mustang was a venerable warhorse and a big brute of a fighter plane. I don't know that this has it yet. One thing that really struck me about this design, and just like you said, Tony, they have the part where they were putting it into a matte painting to show what it would look like flying through the atmosphere. I mean, just a couple of things that struck me about it is it didn't look aerodynamic in the slightest. Those wing leg things look like they would generate way too much drag for it to be a suitable atmospheric. Uh, 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 uh. Okay, there you go. There's the key word. What? Atmospheric? Yeah. Yeah, we're not gonna, we're not going to be flying in, in the atmosphere with this thing. No, I, I I realize that, and it's going to be out in space. But they did show it in the atmosphere. Oh, oh, that's a good point. Yeah, and it is designed to land because the wings or whatever the hell they are are also the landing feet. So that's mm-hmm. that's also another thing that sort of struck me. You know, in in every other aircraft slash spacecraft in this game the landing gear can fold up into the body somehow to protect it because if you're in the middle of a dogfight if you take a hard hit to the bottom of the hole yeah there's a chance your landing gear will go but you don't want it to be targetable you don't want it to be just instantly picked off and blown apart but if you just take two shots to the wing you're screwed you can't land and if you do land you'll be completely sideways it just didn't really look as if it was well designed in that respect and then on the engine side of things is it just me or would that put the the center of thrust way too high for that aircraft or spacecraft i guess i guess if it's space it doesn't really matter all too much but i guess i get well, a bit stuck on the atmospheric side no, of it. no no i mean no you, you still do get you still have cg problems but i think that they're programming the in-flight control system to sort of compensate for that yeah sort of thing. but I mean, surely it, that's overcompensation for something that was just bad design you know it's like i have a hard time disagreeing with you let's just put it this way you know they had the whole video there of how it was designed I mean, the guy sort of started from, I wanted to make a cool-looking thing, right? Yeah. And, that, and that's fine. I mean, and that, and that was the design choice, right? And clearly, Chris Roberts was happy with it, and clearly the artist was happy with it. But, you know, I mean, it's a cool-looking ship, but it's sort of maybe the choice between design aesthetic versus real-world functionality, and I use real-world in quotes there, might have gone heavily on the design aesthetic side mm. and not as much on the real world functionality side as we've been trained you know we've been trained by the team over there to look at these things like this could be a ship that i could fly yeah exactly you know, if only if that was the thing that was cool about the battlestar galactica reboot is that all the things in the battlestar galactica universe were very familiar from the handguns yes. to the fighter controls to the combat information center these are all familiar things and it's not hard to make the leap that okay if we just get artificial gravity sorted out and high density liquid fuel if we get those two things solved we could have battle stars that's sort of how we've been trained in the Chris Roberts universe is that if we just get jump points figured out and artificial gravity, then that could be us. And this Mustang doesn't fit that model as well 
as some of the other ships we've seen. Yeah. I'm starting to wonder with what you said now, if it's suffering from a sort of uncanny valley effect, which if you're not aware of what that is, yeah. it's where artificial life like androids and all that, they reach a point where they don't look anything like humans. So it's, you know, it's obviously it's fake, it's fine, we're comfortable with them. But then there's a point where they reach looking like humans so much, but just something's not quite right about them and it just throws it off and makes it completely unnatural. Because if you take the Vandal fighter that we saw last yeah. episode, that is completely unatmospheric, it's slanted, it's lopsided, there's no way that's going to be stable. But I think because it looks like an alien craft, it feels alien and we can accept it. This one looks too human and therefore too wrong. I like it. Yes, I like it. Well, that brings us to our next community question. Who's ditching their Aurora for a Mustang? Are we going to get a similar sneak peek at all the other stretch goal ships on future episodes of The Next Great Starship? Well, let us know on our show post in the RSI forums or beneath our show notes on GuardFrequency.com. Remember, special surprise in the feedback loop. Special surprise. Next up we have Wingman's Hangar 57. I was excited when I saw the opening for Wingman. I really, really got into the fact that they're doing so much in this for assets and whatnot. Are you talking about the mining colony specifically? The mining colony, the mining droids, yes, pretty much. I sort of dug that they really did sort of had a different take on it, you know, and they even pointed this out in the segment, but, you know, they started off by going, well, we just stuck a building on an asteroid like everybody else does, and then we thought, no, let's do it the other way. And they stuck a building in the middle and then stuck the asteroids to the building. I'm like, what? What is this? What is this sorcery you've just done here? They had little guy wires and stuff anchoring chunks of asteroid to a six-kilometer-long platform. I'm like, well, yeah, there's no gravity in space. Why would you build something on a rock that you're just going to mine out from under you? Screw that. Bring the asteroids to you and mine them right there next to the platform. That's how you do it. If it were a real mining operation, that's how you do it. Yeah, I was really impressed. The droids were especially cool. They were talking about something interesting, mining in an underwater planet or some other hazardous location that where we take these big, huge mining droids. And, oh, they were awesome. Oh, I can't wait. Jeff can't even put coherent sentences <laughs> yeah. together, ladies and gentlemen. They were that cool. <laughs> if you haven't seen Wingman's Hangar, go check them out and go check out these humongous, like, arachnid, tick-looking mining droids. I mean, they even have a huge sack on the back of them to put all the ore and stuff. I mean... A lot of designers do it. They take a look around, you know, dolphins and manta rays, and they say, I'm going to make a ship that's based on that. You know, this is going to be built for speed. This is going to be built for toughness. These things are built to scavenge. They're built to suck up resources, and they made them look like ticks and spiders. It's just a great example of the form meeting the function, and you kind of go, oh, I know what that's for. I know what that's supposed to do, and it looks badass doing it. It also looks like you could go into more hazardous areas where uh, yeah, survive. They're armored and like tough. Uh, several yeah. gravities. Oh, yeah. Mining on Jupiter. I mean, look what we could resource out of Jupiter if we were able to. Well, also, they kind of let slip some tidbits also during there. Those assets that we saw are being built for the first 10 episodes of Squadron 42. And they're working hard on those first 10 episodes because those are the ones we're going to get first. Fingers crossed by the end of 2014. It's already been known that we're going to get Squadron 42 episodically if you're a backer. But they went on to say that their release goal is going to be a 10-episode segment ending in a cliffhanger and then another 10-episode segment ending in a cliffhanger to get that to recapture that sort of old-style serial feel from the 1940s. There's another call-out to your Fallout soundtrack reference there, Jeff. 
but to get that kind of feel in the Squadron 42 release. Are you guys looking forward to those? Or would you rather have it as one chunk? Uh, depends. How fast are the chunks? Are we going to play for an hour and then be done? Oh, no. Ten episodes, well, you figure 15 to 30 minutes an episode probably, I'd say. I'm not necessarily fussed about the length of the episodes, but just more how timely is the second set of releases going to be. I mean, I I hate to use the word Half-Life 3. Oh. Oh. (laughs) Ooh. Hey, 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 this is a family show. Oh, sorry, sorry. Well, then I guess I should probably (laughs) avoid asking questions like, where the f*** is the dogfighting module? Well, well, we kind of know where it's at. I mean, it's coming before the PAX East trade show, right? (laughs) (laughs) Come on, no skepticism here. We've got a back... (laughs) Well, okay, now look, the reveal is scheduled right before PAX on April the 10th. That part, I'm sure, is set in stone. Whatever they're done with on April 10th, that's what they're going to show off. That's what they're going to reveal to everybody. They're going to have a little party. Okay, that's going to happen. But the release to the rest of the alpha backers, sometime at an unspecified time after that time, and dear God, that's a long time. Still up in the air, is it? So it still makes it a valid question. Where the f*** is the dogfighting module? It is a valid question. So, Jeff, what have you been doing while waiting for the dogfight? Well, I revisited an old game, SWOTOR, or Star Wars, The Old Republic. Get out. Get out. Yep, we're done. Out. We're done. You're fired. Done. <laughs> you know, it, it's games like that that make me really appreciate good games. So, Okay, <laughs> <laughs> okay you're rehired. <laughs> well, speaking of good games, you're all about to have a, a treat. We have an interview scheduled with an uh, independent developer, but I've been playing his game called Void Destroyer, and that is a creepy difficult, um, mm-hmm. but it's really good, and I highly recommend it to folks. You'll hear our full interview with him in just a few minutes, but that's what I've been doing this week, uh, getting my hands on that. Yeah, that's basically what I've been doing as well. Uh, same as Tony here, really got into Void Destroyer. I mean, you flagged it to us on Steam. I think it was you actually bought it between segments last week, so I've been keeping an eye on it, and then, yeah, finally got into it. It's, it's really good. Like you said, it's a difficult game, but a challenging game is just really good at the moment, especially with so many that are just cakewalk through them. It's, it's hardcore, but it's worth it. Say, Tony, do you think that there could be like a, a, a special surprise if people keep listening? Special I don't know, surprise. but they should definitely listen. Yes. Oh, special surprise. Special surprise. Listen through the interview into the feedback loop for a special surprise. Well, with the latest news from CIG done, let's get back to the basics with Nuggets for Nuggets. You have all flown before, but you're about to enter a whole new world, so pay attention. That means get on your feet, Nuggets! Hello, citizens and civilians, and welcome to Nuggets for Nuggets. This is our section of the show where we like to delve into the mechanics of Star Citizen and give you the gory details from the inside out. Fair warning, though, the game is still very much in active development, so everything we say is probably going to be completely inaccurate in three months' time. There are a lot of things that a spaceman never wants to hear. Things such as... Wait, 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 was it second star to the right? And, of course, the classic one around here is, Jeff, y'all gonna finish eating your cheeseburger? But, above all else, what they especially don't want to hear is the phrase, So, am I supposed to be able to see outer space from the cargo bay? Well, unfortunately, if you like to live life on the edge of the deep black, this could be a situation you find yourself in on more than one occasion. The finer details of the damage system are a little unknown at this point, but one thing that we do know for certain is that you're going to be able to mitigate it as much as possible. Of course, they say that the best defense is a good offense, 
But what about when the other person's weapon's just a slightly bit bigger than yours? We know so far that shields have different ratings. We've seen them rated from a 2 all the way up to an 8. I believe that is tutti-frutti in the metric system. We have no idea how that compares, but we do know is that bigger is better. Not every ship will be able to equip every shield type out there, but through the use of upgrade points and clever power management, you'll be able to raise a bubble of energy so impregnable not even Benedict Cumberbatch in a leopard print thong will be able to reach the target, we think. Shields are, after all, energy, and energy can be depleted. Shields will have zones, so if you take too much damage to one facing, you'll find yourself being worn a bit thin. Repositioning your craft to take damage to another facing will help mitigate as much damage as possible. But, as they say, all good things must come to an end, and eventually your shields will run out of power. So, what will happen when you're out of shields? Or maybe you were ambushed and didn't have time to raise your shields? Well, things just got a whole lot more interesting for you. In Star Citizen, each ship has individual damage maps that go from pristine through badly charred to non-existent stubs of a wing left for pretty much every single element on the ship. So, if you take a couple of strong hits to your wing, you can kiss it goodbye. Not just cosmetically, but your handling, your turn rate, and if you had a wing-mounted arsenal, well, all of that will take a hit or simply be unavailable. Well, this then opens up a whole series of extra fun and games that can be had while pirating or defending yourself from those pirates. Want to claim that fancy-looking freelancer as your very own? Well, no problem. Simply target their engines, destroy them, and once you've killed the occupants, tow it back to your area of space. Yes, you'll be able to take out individual parts of a ship, like life support, thrusters, engines, rather than just targeting the ship as a whole, like you would in a traditional MMO. However, this brings a certain level of player-based skill. You better hope you're as much of a crack shot as you think you are, or you might aim for the engines and end up taking out the weapon stores, or the fuel tank, or anything else that might make it go boom. Well, I've been having a lot of fun thinking about this because remember that scene in Star Trek Three where the guy gets vaporized because he got mm-hmm. a lucky shot in? Yeah, that's what I'm thinking about here is that, you know, how much damage is too much damage and where it's going to take a light trigger finger to try to capture someone or to board somebody and not just ruin the thing you're trying to capture. Yeah. What I would quite like to see, and I know this is just pipe dream material here, but if you can truly target something, would you be able to, say, fly around the front of someone's cockpit and snipe them through the glass? So that way I you, think that's the idea, yeah. Yeah, so you don't damage the ship at all. You just straight up attack the pilot, and once they're out, you're sorted. Yeah. That goes a fun little question here. You know, it's going to have that not really dead mechanic where, you know, if, if you shoot one guy and he's got an NPC crew and they take over, then we just have to shoot the NPC guy that knocks your dead body out of the pilot seat and tries to fly it away. And then if you have a four-person Connie, you have to do that two more times. I doubt that you're going to be able to get in front of somebody, not, you know, dip or move or pull an idleman or make some kind of move that will yeah. get you shot out of your pilot. So don't fret. We don't know what that's going to be like. Well, for next week's show, we want your voice to be heard. So, why not take the time out right now to go and vote in our fabled ship poll on this show's post over at guardfrequency.com slash 011, because it's episode 11 after all, and tell us which ship you think should grace our Nuggets for Nuggets section next week. But for now, let's get into our interview with Paul, the creator of Void Destroyer. Authenticate identity with recognition codes immediately. I am a cipher, a cipher, wrapped in an enigma, smothered in secret sauce. 
And we're joined by Paul Chichevsky, uh developer of the independent game Void Destroyer. Thanks for joining, Paul. Thank you. Thank you, guys. So I've been following Void Destroyer for several months, actually. I've downloaded several of your iterations, and we have been looking for things to do while waiting for Star Citizen to drop, and we thought your game fit to the bill quite nicely. Why don't you tell us how you got started in developing that game? Well, first of all, let me say that it's always great to hear that people have been following the game. You know, I hear this a bunch. Every time I hear it, it always, always feels really good, really good to hear it. You know, because you're kind of out alone in the wilderness in Indy, you know, tiny guys somewhere. You know, there's all these different projects out there. And then you hear somebody's been following you, you're like, yes, you know, victory. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's like that when you someone says, we listen to your podcast. <laughs> exactly. You're like, <laughs> in the same sort of thing. Yeah. Like, oh, <laughs> um, we're trying to make something. We're trying to create something, right? And that's right. That's uh-huh. an incredible thing, and it's very rewarding. At the same time, it's very challenging. So, yeah, you know, so I'm making a independent video game, and I started about four years ago, and it really... You know, I really didn't plan for it to get this big. I really just wanted a hobby. I wanted to experiment, to learn programming. And the way I thought I could do this is to, you know, make something that would really motivate me. And one of those things would be to make a video game, you know, because when you try to learning programming, it's really boring examples from the book. You're adding numbers, you're taking apart sentences, things like that. Really boring stuff. You know, it's, it's really a terrible way of learning things, in my opinion. But, you know, making a spaceship fly or making a spaceship shoot bullets or AI, those are pretty exciting things you get to see. I started doing that, and it really got out of hand, you know, and four years later... Four years later, I did a Kickstarter, and now I'm on Steam. Steam's early access is almost unbelievable, you know. But in this day and age, there's all these incredible tools, technologies. There's uh, incredible online resources, all sorts of things. You can collaborate with people. You get inspiration from other indie developers and other studios. So, you know, all those things helped a lot. So it's really, like, really a good time. And all those things combined with just the crazy obsession and crazy amount of any spare moment in my life trying to devote to this thing uh, has led up to here. Well, and you say you started about four years ago just on your own, just tinkering, right? Right. Well, what made you think that somewhere along the line, look, it's this is going to be more than just me. i got to get some more people on board with this. What happened essentially was that I still pretty much do majority of the game, but I can't do art really well. You know, I can't do right. art terribly. I can do art really well. <laughs> So essentially what started to happen, I'm like, okay, this is a cool game. I loved it, even though it was terrible. You know, years ago, I loved it, but it was... Mm-hmm. It, was it was your baby. you got to love it. Right? Even the ugly one. Yeah, yeah. And then, um, you know, and people started noticing it. I got outside help for creating art assets. And I thought to myself, hey, maybe one day this thing could go commercial. Or if, well, if it's going to go commercial, I have to pay for art. I can't take free art and then sell it. You know, right. That just doesn't make any sense. So with a bunch of generous artists, I was able to get art. And some of that I was able to use still. Some of that just went away just because it didn't fit the current art style. But once I got good art, that's when I got really excited. I'm like, holy crap. This looks good, huh? This looks good. You know, this was about a year and a half, two years ago. Back in actually Iteration 11, which is the company name right now, Iteration 11. Ah, uh, I was going to ask you about the name of your company. So, But, yeah, so that explains it then. And So you... You've gone through 10 previous versions of this thing, and, you know, each one building on the last one. Have been, and, and version 11, you thought, oh, my God, this could be something. Yeah, I'm like, this finally looks good. And, and keep in mind, because you're like, you know, when you're making this, I get super excited. Anytime I would, I would add a feature, the stupidest feature yeah. you could think of, I would show my wife, and she would be, like, rolling her eyes, <laughs> like, who cares? And I'm yeah. like, don't you understand? This ship is moving. You know? <laughs> <laughs> it's flying. You know, it took me a week 
victory is mine. Right. You know, it's crazy stuff like that. And then finally, after years, the thing looks cool, and I'm like, holy crap. You know, I could see myself buying this, you know, and then maybe somebody else could actually, more importantly, enjoy it and think it looks good, you know, because, yeah, we really want things to look good, you know, unique. They don't necessarily have to look good, but they certainly have to look unique, have to draw the eye. That's how we present things, right? You don't judge a book right. by its cover, but you kind of do in terms sure. of video games, right? They got to look good or else you'll quickly tire of it and move on to something else. Right, you want it to look professional, you want it to look uh, right. like you, you put a lot of care into it, and that's, you know, the visuals are, are very important. So once that happened, and I started contracting art, and then I started contracting music and things like that, and the problem is, you know, you, you use your own bank account, basically, you know, because the game, yeah. at that point, you know, I wouldn't charge for a game at, at that point. It just would not be a good time to charge for it. You know, I wouldn't feel right charging for the game at that point. And plus, nobody would probably pay for it. So, you know, I'm using my own bank account, and then you get to the point where you're kind of like, ugh, this credit card bill is kind of high, and then you see Kickstarter happening, and you're like, oh, you know what, I wasn't really considering Kickstarter a lot, but then I see it, and I'm like, this could really take it to the next level, I saw some other people suggesting it, and uh, I tossed it onto Kickstarter, and the goal was to raise money for art assets, and a lot of people responded to it. It wasn't a gigantic success like some, you know, but it was a pretty decent success. We got over our goal, and that really mm-hmm. made an incredible amount of difference. Because first of all, a lot of attention, you know, got a lot of attention. When you put a price tag on something, and it incredibly increases the value and the exposure, you know, because before Kickstarter, when the game was just my website, like zero media attention, completely zero, you know. Right. But when you do a Kickstarter, all of a sudden there's like media attention. Mm-hmm. And, You're, you get amplified. Right? right. And then people write articles about, it. okay, here's this person who's making this game and he wants this amount of money. Here's what I think about it. You know, all of a sudden there's articles, a lot more exposure. So Kickstarter was incredibly great for that. Just for that alone, Kickstarter is worth it, you know, just to get your name out yeah. there to a bigger audience. So basically there were two judgments here. One was your first judgment that, look, I can either stop this project now because I really can't afford to keep going on it. It's as far as I can take it by myself. And you decided, well, I want it to go farther, so I'm going to need some help. And then you sort of like put yourself out on display and let other people judge you. Here's how much this guy wants, and I think it might be worth it or it might not be. You guys go figure it out. So there's these two decision points, one that's made by you, one that's made by everybody that cares to take a look at your game. Right. Essentially, you know, I wouldn't have stopped the project, but it would have taken like extra five years or something. You know, whatever it's going to take. Just add like five years of me like waiting for my bank account to recover and then buy another music track or something. <laughs> okay. You know, right. that sort of thing. Yeah. So essentially, you know, I had to put the brakes on a lot of my uh, contractors. I had to be like, okay, mm-hmm. guys, you know, I can't afford another music track. So when you're in a basement right now, like I am right now, and, you know, like you said, hey, you've been following the project for so many months. And again, that feels great to me because I have no idea. The game has never been a huge success. It's always been a decent success, but never like this huge media viral type of a thing that some projects mm-hmm. get, you know. But it's always been a good amount where it can just keep going. You know, I'm not, not complaining. But yeah, yeah. when you put your game on a Kickstarter, like in my position, like I was nervous I was going to get zero. <laughs> sure, you know? yeah. And yeah, uh, Ultimate rejection. Yeah, like ultimate rejection, like zero, right? And I'm talking to my wife, and she's like, okay, don't get too excited. Don't get your feelings hurt, you know? And then, like, you start posting on the forums, and you try to tell people about it, you know, try to get some attention. And then, like, an hour later, somebody gives you 20 bucks. <laughs> and I'm like, yes! <laughs> I'm like, success! 
you know. Somebody likes me. There's one person, so it was worth it. I'm not a complete fool, you know. <laughs> Once that happened, I was super excited, and then uh, you know we did meet our goal. We did we did uh, exceed it. Goal was twenty grand, and uh-huh. the goal was to split it three ways between two uh, D art, three D art, and music. What we got was thirty five. Okay. So we uh, surpassed the twenty grand. You'd be happy if they just paid off your credit card bill. <laughs> if it's a hundred grand or or a hundred thousand, you'll spend it. You know. Right. So the interesting thing was, it took about twenty five days, majority of the Kickstarter to get twenty grand, and then one little blurb in uh, Rock Paper Shotgun put the blurb on it. They threw the trailer I made for it over a weekend, and that got picked up by a bunch of other websites. All you got to do is break into one thing, and then everybody else. Once you're popular, you're popular. Right. You're a thing. Yeah. So then it got picked up by Joystick, Polygon, and Kotaku, those mm-hmm. websites. And over the next three days, that's when it went from 20 to 35. So after you got the Kickstarter funding, then someone from Steam contacted you, or did you reach out to Steam? So what happened was I put the game on Steam's green lights right at the time of the Kickstarter. The Kickstarter and the green light were running simultaneously, and that was a really great idea of mine. Because what happens is on this green light, the first week or so, you're featured as new. And then you drop off in like a regular rotation. The first period is incredibly important where most people go. Mm-hmm. And Void Destroyer was getting about 50% yes to no ratio. Would you buy the oh, game? 50-50. Yeah, 50-50, which, oh. which is, which is actually good. Oh. It's not great. <laughs> Cause I've seen some mm-hmm. projects which were like 20%, things like that. Sometimes developers post their stats. But if it was all yes, then it would just be greenlit right there. You know, so it's, it's a major difference. Mm-hmm. And a lot of hot projects were getting greenlit like a week into it. It took me like four months or something. And actually, because what happened was Steam started just like opening the floodgates. Mm-hmm. They greenlit 100 titles. Right. Uh, and once they cleared those out, then all of a sudden I shot up. And then a, a month after that, I believe, or two, that's when I got greenlit. That's my world all journey. Sure. So, Paul, what made you pick Space Sims and then RTS Space Sims? So when I started, I, I just really wanted to make a space and that's it. You know, I wanted to make something pretty much like Privateer or X Rebirth or Freelancer, you know, th- those sort of classic games where you start as nothing and then you work your way up. And my unique thing was going to be that it was an entire solar system, which was a really bad idea because I had, because <laughs> you can see each planet at the same time, which sounds really cool, right? Except the planets were tiny. So the scale was really bad, right? I'm working on the features and I'm like, okay, I have all these planets. I need some way to find them because it's hard, you know, because there's like 10 planets and they have moons and stuff. And then it's hard. So I need a map, you know, I need a 2D map. And I made this 2D map and I'm like, you know what? First of all, this map is awful because I'm just starting. The art is terrible. And second of all, even if it's the greatest 2D map, it's always going to be 2D, you know, so it's just going to suck. You know, what if it could be 3D? So I made a 3D map, and then I'm like, okay, this is cool. What if I could issue orders to this ship? And then just be able to move the camera anywhere, sort of like a 3D map, start to get the ball rolling, because it looked pretty much like Homeworld's map, yeah, Homeworld's interface. And then I'm like, okay, well, now I need, like, these trading ships to get all these resources, and we need subcomponents and raw materials and... And I'm starting to write these all these things out, you know, okay, ore, right? Okay, now you got metal hull, right? And then you got like electrical components or something. And I'm like, first of all, this kind of is boring writing this out. And even if I write this out, it's not going to be as good as the X series economy, which is pretty good. You know, you have subcomponents, raw materials, and then eventually like a shield or a laser. I'm like, what if it's just like three resources, uh, energy, ore, and food? What if it's just that? 
And then I'm like, okay, those are pretty RTS type resources, you know, very simplified. What if I just make it an RTS elements? So really the intention was space sim. And now some people will say that it's actually heavier towards RTS. For those that maybe not be familiar with your game, let's talk about the arrangement of the game. It's a complex game. I mean, it really is a space sim piloting exercise with a joystick and, and your keyboard and, and aiming and shooting, plus the entire home world slash command and conquer back into it, too. So you can go back and forth. Right, so it's really not intended to be complicated. It just ended up like that. When you look at what I'm able to do, I'm able to code in game features. That's what I can give to the project. So I'm like, okay, well, what other features do I want? You know, Okay, now you can control the turret. Okay, what other features do I want? Okay, now you can issue commands. And people kind of go like, oh, man, there's so many keys, there's so many controls. And you don't necessarily have to do use them all. That's the other thing. And there's like five different ways of doing the same thing. Well, and that's kind of the beauty of the game, too, is that, you know, if, if you want to just fly a little ship around and get on somebody's six and blow them out of the sky, you can do that. Right. If you want to be the fleet admiral and move all your little pieces in the chessboard, you can do that. Right. Like in Freelancer, you could only pilot one ship at a time and you were stuck in it. What if you could be a fighter one second and a frigate the next second? Things of that nature. So I tried to really look at all the cool games, <laughs> games that I enjoyed through my lifetime of growing up and try to put in all these different elements. And the drawing and the art style in this game is really unique. It, I mean, it has a real comic book feel to it. I mean, it really looks like this should be a comic book series. So anytime you're an indie, you know, I think you should really take a lot of risks and try to really maximize what you have. And you have nothing to lose, so risk it all. You know, there's like no other space that looks like this. You've got a really unique look to it, so it makes people at least like catches their eye and makes them take a you know stare at it for a minute. And then when you get underneath it, you've got a lot of things going on under the hood, right. where it would take somebody, you know, when people give you money for a game, what they're really doing is they're paying for some entertainment time. Right. And the different layers of your game, there's a lot of them. And so for is it fifteen dollars on Steam early access these yes, days? Is that, now, yes. That's an excellent value for the dollar because there's a lot of depth to this game and different ways you can play it. So I think you've hit something here. Value is really important. You know, when you're making a game, you want people to recommend it to your friends and it makes me sad if I hear like that somebody says, Oh, I wasted my money. You know, so you're like, Okay, let's give them value. Well, tell us, is there anything that our fans need to know about how they can get a hold of this great game that you've made? Well it's on Steam's early access and you can Find the link from my website, which is voiddestroyer.com. But if you go on Steam, you can search for it, Void Destroyer. If you have any questions, you can always contact me. You know, I'm just, I'm an indie developer. So part of the indie thing is just contacting us, talking to us, asking us questions. Going on podcasts. Yeah, there's plenty of info on it. <laughs> there's plenty of info on it. You know, I try to talk about it as much as I can. There's a blog. You can read about it and check out the videos and things like right. that. You know, there's, there's a ton of info all over the place. All right, well, I've been having fun with this game off and on for months, and I, when I saw it go on Steam Early Access, I was pretty excited about it. I, it looked like you had gone to the next level, and I was like, this, looks, this thing's going to be real. This is going to happen. Yeah, and that's, again, that's with Kickstarter. You know, without that, it was really putting brakes on it. Kickstarter's been great. It's been great for the project. Yeah, okay, well, we want to thank Paul Chachewski for uh, joining us here on Guard Frequency today and his new game, Void Destroyer, that you can find on Steam Early Access for $14.99 American or eight pounds, three shillings, and 12 guineas in the metric system, I think. Hey, Paul, thanks for stopping by. Thank you, guys. All right, now let's get into the feedback loop. Okay, buddy, what's on your mind? We're all friendlies, so let's just be friendly. 
and coming to us via the Robot Space Industries for... Uh, whoa, 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 What? This is the secret surprise. <gasps> secret surprise. surprise. Oh, yeah. This is the secret surprise. So we have, in honor of our special guest, Paul, creator of Void Destroyer, and through his marvelous generosity, we have some Steam codes to give away. So if you leave a comment on the RSI forum post for this show, number 11, you will be entered into a drawing for a free Steam early access code to Void Destroyer, courtesy of its creator. So we got one comment on our RSI forum this week, which Lennon will be reading shortly. If you leave a comment next week, the Steam early access code could be yours. Special surprise. Go, Lennon. I'm going. God. <laughs> Pausing for dramatic effect, man. What is wrong with you? I'm not very dramatic or very effective. No, that's true. I have heard the rumors. <laughs> and via the Robert Space Industries forums, we hear from Devis Nikoranov, who says, Just wanted to drop by and say, I love these. I haven't listened to the latest one yet, but I will soon. Also, I put... <laughs> <laughs> yes! Yes! Uh, he stumbled! I didn't even try! It was just there! Was, I, Come I, on, I, I was like, put on the accent. Do it, do it. Uh, he then goes on to say, in some butchered concoction of what I used to know as English. Also, I put y'all's org under a list of SARS org thread linked in my signature. I'm sorry, Davis, if you don't <laughs> sound anything like that, but you've you've got to learn grammar, son. Oh, no, no, no. That was perfect. <laughs> I think, you know, I think he wrote that in there just for you, Lennon, I'm pretty sure. Uh, I, and, uh, I am this, too. This gentleman, Mr. Nico Reynolds, uh, contacted me as the founder of the Guard Frequency Response Organization, and and he is putting together a group of groups to coordinate all of the search slash rescue slash medical orgs that are out there. He's trying to get everybody kind of on the same page. So if you want to get in touch with him directly and are interested in that kind of gameplay too, check out the show post on episode 10 for Guard Frequency on the fan site subforums and grab his forum handle, get in touch with him. We've already sort of made contact with him. So if you're a member of Guard Frequency Response, we're already hooked in with him and his group. This is fun. I mean, this is, you know, people reaching out to each other with common ideas, common gameplay goals, and let's keep the conversation going. From our show post over at GuardFrequency.com, we hear from Sean Newboy. This is an awesome episode. Awesome lector impression, by the way. Thank you, Clarice. And from Twitter, we hear from our community manager, Shiverobean. He says, well, just put every Wing Commander game on GOG. And then Ken from Chicago, you replied, it's really caught my attention here, so I threw it into the feedback. Ken from Chicago replies to Shiverobean saying, well, if you liked Wing Commander, you should try the sequel, Drumstick Commander. <laughs> so did our show make you want to scream and shout and let it all out? Would it be better if we replaced Lennon with a talking cat? Let us know. Here are some ways you can get in touch with us. You can check out our forum post at forums.robertspaceindustries.com. You can leave a comment on this episode's show notes at guardfrequency.com. Now you can subscribe to us, feeds.guardfrequency.com, or find us on iTunes. You can hit us up on Twitter at GuardFreak, or leave a comment and like us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash GuardFreak. And if you're old school like us, shoot an email to squawk at guardfrequency.com. That's S-Q-U-A-W-K at guardfrequency.com. Your feedback is an important part of what we do, so take a minute and tell us what's on your mind. Just before we disappear, we want to say a special thanks to all of our new Twitter followers at jmatmiracle, at starcitizenbase, at starbaseugc, and at animusarchus. Thanks for joining us, guys. 
And that brings us to the end of episode 11 of Guard Frequency. We'll be back with episode 12 on the 4th of March. Be sure to keep an eye out for our episodes over at GuardFrequency.com or our post over at Robert Space Industries fan site forum. Please send us your feedback about the show. Aside from all the ways we just ran down in the feedback loop, you can hit our contact form at the top of our website. But this week, be sure to post up on our show's forum thread over at robertspaceindustries.com and get your name in the drawing for Void Destroyer Early Access on Steam. All the details for all of our contact methods will be in the show notes. Do you like what we do? Do you think you can do better? Because, well, (laughs) the bar's not exactly set high, is it? I'll tell you what. After this evening, I quit. So there's an opening. <laughs> if so, send us a note to skork at guardfrequency.com. And if you're looking for a friendly wingman or two or just a straight man for your jokes, check out our organization, Guard Frequency Response, at the official RSI website, robertspaceindustries.com forward slash orgs forward slash guardfreak. And we want to thank our entire team over at Guard Frequency and Priority One Productions. Special thanks to Ronald Jenkins for his permission to use his music in our show. Visit ronaldjenkins.com for more of his work. And we especially want to thank you folks for tuning in. If there's no one listening out there, the deep black gets pretty lonely. Reduce thrust. 10330, count 15. Squawk 7700. Stay on the guard. And closing in three, two, formalities, Jeffrey, formalities. I know, I know, I'm sorry. I caught myself. <clears throat> and that brings us to the end of episode 11 of Guard. <laughs> Stuck in. <laughs> Go ahead, Lennon, it's your turn to admonish me about the formalities. I Formalities, Jeffrey. Yes. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> so what if we have... So what do we have this week, Tony? Well, this week uh, we check out in Squawk Box. We'll get you up to that. Didn't sound right either. Wait, it's infectious. What about when the other person's weapon's just a slightly bit bigger than yours? I've never had that problem. Devis Nico Ranoff, the double-barreled surname of a lord. The, s- <laughs> the spelling. Who wants who wants a cheeseburger? The spelling <laughs> and grammar of someone from Wichita, right. Kansas. <laughs> Actually, uh, y'all's not too common in Wichita, Kansas. You got to go a little farther yeah, south. Yeah, you got to go a, little, a lot farther south, actually. In Mexico, <laughs> that's surely the next place over. But, but I'm sure no, to no, Lennon no. that we all sound alike. So I, I guess probably no. no clearly, we don't because he could put that accent on like nothing. That was good. <laughs> hmm. So last week it was more regular than a prune juice diet. This week it seems to be a little bit constipated on the flow there. A little bit. There, mm, yes. Yeah. Excellent. Go ahead and cut that. Yeah, I will. Don't worry. Session. <laughs> Session. <laughs> Even though it's a little bit dated, I think that the analysis really carries it. What, what What do you guys think? Oh, definitely. I mean, we've got our crystal balls in front of us. <gasps> you have crystal balls? <laughs> I, have. I thought his were made of brass. <laughs> Chromium steel, buddy. <laughs> I'm right, sitting in my in my corner, curled up in a ball, thinking, "What the hell did I get myself into?" <laughs> Are we reading in the answer to these questions an now? Because you only got one in there. Well, this the reason I read this one out loud is because this one um, made me sad, or curious, or afraid, or I had a lot of feels. Uh, 
as as the as the kids say these days. A lot of feels. Brendan Brendan touched me in ways that I don't really understand. Do you need an adult? Um, I, I do. <laughs>